0: You need the counseling, you need education, you need time, you need love, you need healing. There are so many things that you need that coming out of that life, healing from trafficking, the journey to freedom is lifelong.
1: Welcome to Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare, and today we're going to have an interview. The title of the podcast today is And Life Continues with Wendy Barnes, and I'm going to hand it off to my co-host JJ to introduce today's guest.
2: All right, hey everybody. I hope everyone's doing well out there. I am super excited um, about today's guest. Seth and I have actually been talking about having Wendy on um, for almost a year now, um, ever since I um, heard her speak um, as part of a safe harbor initiative that the NGI work for SWAN was fighting for. Wendy is the author of. The book, And Life Continues, Sex Trafficking and My Journey to Freedom. We've linked it down below where you can find it on Amazon. On Amazon, it's ranked 4.8 out of 5 stars. It's a it's a super well-reviewed book. Uh, Seth and I have both read it, both before today and then again leading up to this podcast. Highly recommend it. But enough about the book. We're going to talk about the person now. So Wendy, and I think you guys will will all love talking to her because she's super compelling and really well-spoken. But Wendy, and specifically within her book, talks about how starting around age 15, uh, she was trafficked for 13 years throughout the West Coast, um, all the way from Washington to California she talks about then how she was viewed uh, something that Seth and I have talked about in this podcast before by the legal system as a criminal instead of a victim, even serving a prison sentence actually related to things that happened during her trafficking. And now though, what Wendy does, which I think is so amazing is she advocates for other trafficking survivors in particular, not just as an author, but you know, as a consultant, as a trainer um, and as a speaker. And, so it's so wonderful to actually hear from a survivor directly about maybe things people in the survivor community need or things that service providers, whether they be, you know, kind of academic researchers like Seth and I are not what we can do. So welcome, Wendy. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Um, appreciate both of you. Oh, well thank you. And then is there is there anything non? I know we kind of gave sort of your your professional like trafficking related bio any any fun tidbits about your life? Do you want to share? I know. So you have three children?
0: Yes, I have three children. Um, well, we just moved back up to Seattle, Washington after a very long time. Uh, my adult daughter and I, we moved back up to Seattle. So we're getting to know Seattle all over again. So we're going to go on the Great Wheel and up into the Space Needle, which they've turned into like a glass bottom. The, 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 the bottom part is glass now, so you can see all the way down. So I'm kind of scared about that, but, <laughs> but yeah, mm-hmm. we're, we're having fun up here in Seattle, just trying to rediscover it new.
1: Have you seen the sun since you've been back?
0: <laughs> it is actually, you know what? It is like 87 degrees here today. And in California, where I've been for the past 14 years, it's only like 68 degrees. I'm like, I want to go back to California. Yes. But is there sun? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there is sun. You know, there is sun um, this past week. But yeah, the winters here are long and dreary.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because that's, I mean, like, this is sort of just a side. Thing. Like, this is kind of a thing that Seth and I try to, try to stress, is that this whole, well, human trafficking is this really sort of deep dive into the grossness of, of human life. Like, there are human beings involved. So, like, people who are survivors of human trafficking, like, uh, trafficking isn't their whole lives, you yeah. know? So, they have families, they like to play, I don't know, like, the ukulele, <laughs> they're into cats, I don't know, you know, (laughs) it's just people have very rich lives outside of this, this one particular thing. Oh, yeah. Well, I think what we'll do now is we'll kind of go ahead and sort of and sort of jump right into it. Seth, do you want to start off or?
1: Sure. So you wrote a whole book about it. And it's not a short book. So we're not gonna cover the whole book, obviously, in the podcast, because we want people to buy the book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but to uh, try to give a sense of what happened and how, how the story started. So at some point in your life, you met Greg.
0: Correct. Well, I always like to start off with the four factors that contributed to me feeling lost, alone, and unloved when I was 15 years old. You okay. know, I always said, as if it was written on our forehead foreheads he knew which girls to target and you know that always like you know what how does he know which girls to target and for me um the first factor was bullying i was bullied at school for having red hair and freckles i was bullied at home by my older brother um parental absence my mom and dad divorced when i was uh, eight years old my dad moved away, which was really no big deal, but this also left my mom having to work two jobs to keep a roof over our head. So, you know, I literally, I remember I would come home from school around 3, 3.30, and I would sit in front of the TV until 8 o'clock at night when she would get home. The TV literally was my best friend. Um, third factor was um, poverty. And then uh, fourth factor is child sexual abuse. When I was 11, my mom did remarry, and I was sexually abused by my stepfather. So you take in those four factors, and, you know, it left me feeling lost, alone, and unloved. But, you know, I always like to stop and think, how many kids feel that way for any given reason? You know, a person, a child does not have to go through sexual abuse or bullying. It could be anything that could make them feel that way and then leaving them, you know, vulnerable to a trafficker. Now, so I was 15 when I met Greg and a lot of people automatically assume, you know, at this point they think, oh, this is an older guy. But no, Greg was 16 years old at that time. I was introduced to him in the summer between my ninth and tenth grade at school. And the moment I was introduced to him, you know, a, a girl came in and said, You know, hey, Wendy, I want you to meet Greg. Greg, I want you to meet Wendy. Greg turned around, he reached down his hand, he looked me right in the eye, and he said, It's a pleasure to meet you, Wendy. And instantly, my heart went pity pat. It was almost, you know, they say love at first sight. That's what I felt. And, but I quickly, you know, surmised that, you know, there's no way that somebody like that would like somebody like me. I could tell he was very popular. He had lots of other um, kids hanging around him. All the other teenagers were there. And, but then when uh, school started, he showed interest in me. He asked for my telephone number. He called me. He was interested in me. He asked me a lot of questions about my life. He asked me, you know, he was interested in who I was at a very core level. And he made me feel special. He made me feel heard. And I think that's the thing is a lot of kids just want to be heard. They just want to feel important somehow in this world. And he gave that to me. And so um, it didn't take long, and I ended up pregnant with his baby. And
2: I don't know, should I keep
0: going on here, or should I? Yeah, yeah. no, no,
2: no. You're, you're perfect. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we we both have Seth and I, me far more than Seth. Actually, is that I'll we sort of ramble, and it's it's mm-hmm. great. Okay,
1: okay. So. Yeah, but on <laughs> but on that note, like like that seemed to be something that was different than some of the other stories was the fact that you had a child together, mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Like, what were the dynamics of that? Like, was that, did he expect that, do you think? Or, like... This-
0: no, I actually, I, you know, I mean, I was more than happy. I wanted to be pregnant with his baby because I knew that then somebody would love me forever. Mm-hmm. I thought that he would love me forever if I had his baby. Um, and so, and I don't know if at that point, so... So I did not know at this point that he was pimping other girls, but he was. See, he brought it to me. As I remember, I was about eight months pregnant. Um, actually, not even eight months. I was seven months pregnant, and he came to my house one night, and he had a hundred and fifty dollars, and. You know, you have to realize like one hundred and fifty dollars is a whole lot of money. Or I don't even know. Maybe it was only eighty. I don't know. Yeah, I think for some reason I think it's in my book. <laughs> but so he brings us money, and I'm like, oh, where did you get that? And he tells me. He says, I protect these girls that are out. You know, working in the street. They're out. They're prostituting, and they pay me to protect them from the other pimps that are out there. And I was like, girls really do that it's not just in the movies and he was like yeah the girls really do that and there's these pimps out there and they're always messing with them so they pay me to make sure that you know nobody messes with them and then he even asked me can I go out there again next Friday night do you mind if I go out there and do that again and I'm like wow my knight in shining armor is actually going out there and helping other people isn't that so wonderful of him
2: and he's still not, you know, of legal adult age at this point, right? No. He's not even eighteen yet. No. So, no. So I, yeah, and I think that's one of the most interesting things. I think at the beginning of your book that that I think is a sort of a misconception about about trafficking is people sort of have, I think, like the law and order pimp mm-hmm. in their head. Um, or, or sort of the way that that relationship functions, that, that it's one at the beginning of, of like fear when it seems like there's, there's actually like legitimate feeling obviously involved. It's, it's, it's very clear in the book that like you loved him, especially at the beginning. Yeah. And most,
0: actually, I, I would say, I don't want to, I don't want to say bad numbers here, but all the trafficking people that I All the trafficking victims survivors that I know, the majority of them, it was a love relationship. There was a connection. There was a manipulation there. Um, You know, all the girls that Greg had, except for maybe one or two, they all believed, they were all there because they believed that Greg loved them. Pender, stop it. Sorry. I <laughs> have to come get the pay on the mayor. Um, yeah, Greg, you know, every single one of the girls that Greg had, except for one or two, believed that Greg loved them and that they would live happily ever after once they do this. Once they go through this, once he makes enough money, that they would end up being the one that gets to grow old together. Um, And I think most of the people that I talk to, most of the other survivors out there, it's the same thing. There's this attention. There is this, and it may not be love, but it's, you know, they're they're having that emotional need met by this person before before it gets, you know, before the chapter turns it on them.
2: And I, and I think that that's so interesting because when we talk about labor trafficking, it's not actually that much of a different story in terms of um, people will, will engage in sort of very, very risky behavior with sort of dangerous people within labor trafficking under the sort of hope that they're going to be the one that the boss fulfills their promises with or that they're going to be the one that has sort of their dream fulfilled yeah i mean i can't really because i don't know that i think
0: most i'm trying to think of the labor trafficking i think yeah there's you know the labor trafficking victims they they have this dream of a better job you know they're Mm -hmm. you know you know this is a great job for you so they go in with that you know okay this is going to be a great job and then things turn drastically
2: yeah So, when did you sort of first then have the switch from him being this knight in shining armor armor that goes out into the world to him sort of bringing you in more directly?
0: So, when Latasha was about two months old, I so at this point I was 17 years old, he was 18, um, just freshly new, 17 and 18. Um, He came to me, I was still living under my mother's roof. My mother was supplying all of Latasha's needs, all of my needs. And he came to me and I know we were, we had started having problems at this point. He started becoming more emotionally abusive, but I kept, you know, just shrugging it off. You know, he's stressed out, you know, I'm not being a good enough person. I'm not being a good enough wife to him. So he came to me and he said, you know, the only way we're ever going to make it together is if you move out of your mom's house. I'm like, yeah, right. And how's that supposed to happen? he said, "You know what? I got a plan. All you have to do is you and Latasha move into a shelter downtown Seattle. Once you're there, you'll be considered emancipated. Then you can go to the welfare office, apply for welfare, get a check, and then we get an apartment and we live happily ever after." At this, I was very excited. I completely believed him, and even though I was scared, you know, and I knew my mom would not approve, I basically, you know, ran away. So I packed up Latasha. I made sure to take all of her diapers, all of her formula, you know, just kind of packed up a couple of things for myself. And Greg drove us to a shelter downtown Seattle. He dropped us off there. And, and that's the thing, is, I wonder, was I even allowed to be there? Did they just assume I was 18? I don't know. You know, I mean, you know, I don't know. And so I went there And I remember my introduction to the shelter was, here is your room. The bathroom was down the hall. You'd be out every morning at 7 a.m. And you come back every day at uh, 7 p.m. That was it. That was all. Nobody told me there were any other services there. So the the following day, I remember, um, you know, I went up to the welfare office, applied for welfare. But back then, it would take 45 days to get a check. And so after a week... Latasha was out of diapers and about out of formulas. So I was like, you know, what are we going to do? And so I had to get a hold of Greg. He hadn't come by to see me at all during this time. And this was before cell phones. So I remember it took a little while, but, you know, I used a community telephone and, you know, was able to reach him. I said, we're out of diapers, we're out of formula. What are we going to do? And he goes, oh, I got a job we can do. I was like, "Oh, good." For some reason, I thought we were going to go clean somebody's house, and I believe that he, maybe he had told me previously that's how he was getting money—was cleaning people's houses. And I thought that you know it was totally ideal. We could take turns watching Latasha cleaning the house. We get the money for her diapers and formula. He goes, "Yeah, but you got to love Latasha a lot to do this job." And I was like, oh man, I bet I know what it is. The city of Seattle had just recently started hiring teenagers to clean the city streets between four and eight o'clock in the morning. So I started wondering, who on earth is going to watch Latasha that early in the morning? He then just goes, you know what? Just meet me up on Yesler Avenue. At this, I was really excited. I was like, you know, oh yeah, I get to go see Greg. So I bundled up Latasha with her wet diaper and I went walking to go meet him where he was. When I approached him, he took Latasha from me and he was doing all the goo goo gaga things and, you know, just being so sweet and just being such a good father to her. And I just sat there and felt how wonderful it was that, you know, I, you know, how lucky am I that I have this guy that's going to be this wonderful father to my children and he loves me so much. And after a few minutes though, I'm like, so what's this job we're going to do? He goes, well, all you gotta do is walk out onto the street. A man is gonna stop and pick you up. Uh, he's gonna offer you money to have sex with him. You have sex with him right there in the car, and when you're done, you have money for her diapers and formula. And I was up there, what? What are you talking about? What are you doing, what? He goes, Well, don't you love her? I said, Well, yeah, I love Latasha, but how on earth could I do something like that? He goes, well, you know, if you really loved her and if you were a really good mother, you would be willing to do anything for your child. Aren't you willing to do anything for your child? I remember it took more prodding from him. I remember it wasn't even no longer about the diapers and formula. It was whether I was a good mother, whether I loved my daughter Finally, with, uh, you know, with, with the, the straw that broke the camel back, camel's back, was he goes, why is her diaper wet? I was like, I told you I'm out of diapers. He goes, well, then you better get out there. Mm. So I walked down onto the street, and almost immediately, a car pulled over right beside me. I remember I was so scared. My hand was shaking as I opened up the car door. I got into the car. He offered me money to have sex with him. I didn't say anything. He then told me that he knew of a place that we could go and do it in the bushes. I still didn't say anything. He then drove me to the location. He got out of the car and started walking into the bushes. So I got out of the car and I followed him. He handed me the money and, well, thank God he did because I wouldn't have even known to ask for it. As he started taking off his clothes, I started fiddling with the button on my jeans and I started to silently pray, Please, God, don't let this happen. Please, God, I I promise I'll be a good girl from now on. Please, God, just don't let this happen. Get me out of this somehow, some way. I promise I'll go to church every single Sunday. I promise I'll read the Bible every single day. Just don't let this happen. And as I laid down on the ground, the man climbed on top of me. I looked up to the sky and realized there was no God, or maybe worse yet, God just didn't care about me. It was only a few minutes later, he got off of me, we got back into his car, he drove me back to where he had picked me up. As I approached Greg, don't ask me why, I automatically reached my hand out to give him the money, as if to say, see I am worthy, see I am a good mother, see I do love my daughter. And as he took the money from my hand, I turned around and started violently throwing up. The only thing is, I I hadn't hadn't eaten in a couple of days, so there was nothing in my stomach. (laughs) So I just kept dry heaving and dry heaving so hard that the only way I can describe it today is that I threw up my soul. Greg was there to rub my back and tell me what a wonderful person I am. He told me how much he loved me and that now he believed me that I was a good mother. We went and got her diapers. We got her formula. And we even had a couple dollars left over to buy some McDonald's. Uh, And he said that was the only
1: time you would have to do that, correct?
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was really discussed, but I think that is Mm -hmm. what, you know, like, no, this will never. This is like a one time thing. You know, we just need to get her diapers, her formula. That was the only focus. And so, but a week later, there, um, no, you know, her diapers are gone, her formula is gone, and this time it's easier for him to tell me, you know, no, why don't you do a couple more? I need gas in my car, or I need this, or I need that, and the you know, mental abuse started. You know, the name calling and you know. Yeah, and just, you know, from this point, he built and ran one of the largest prostitution rings on the West Coast of that time frame. It consisted of anywhere between four to ten girls at any given time. I remember, like, and so I was trafficked by him for the following 13 years. I remember about six years into it, I remember sitting down one day and counting how many girls had come and gone. And this is how this is how crazy it is, okay? So this is you're gonna go like, what? I don't understand, Wendy. I was actually counting how many times he had cheated on me.
2: And that oh was how question. you counted. I counted over three hundred. And so for the for the girls who who've left, you know, like I guess that's the question is is how how did they did they leave? And, you know, are were you in contact with your family? Were you because at this point you're not living in the in the shelter anymore, right? You guys have right. We got an apartment. apartment. And yeah. Um, so the other
0: girls that left. Okay. So there'd be girls that would just come for one day, one night, um, you know, give them money and they'd be gone. A couple of girls, a couple of nights. And I think at this, see, I think, you know, this I can't say for sure, but I think over time he was perfecting, perfecting the, what is the word I'm looking for? Kind of help me out here. You know, I can't say knack, but you know, perfecting his skills to be able to control and manipulate people. Mm-hmm. He was learning what works, what doesn't work. It's been proven, it's been shown that the longer a girl is groomed, the longer she will stay in the situation. And I think back to the, that, I use that and I think back and like, yeah, like, Girls that Greg would just go out, he would meet them and then put them out on the street the same night, they'd be gone. But girls that he would wine and dine for a couple of weeks, they would stay for a couple of weeks, couple of months. Uh Girls that he took time with, girls that he spent months and months grooming them, showing them, I love you, I love you, then put them out on the street, those are the ones that would end up staying the longest.
2: And I guess my, my thing, too, is so during this time, were you were you in contact with your family or sort of anyone kind of outside of this world? Because, I, I mean, that's also a common thing, too, is that then the only people you interact with are people who he has control over as well.
0: Yeah. So it kind of depends on which time frame. So, like, right after this, no, I was not allowed to have any contact with my mother. I think she knew where I was at one point because I remember, like, in October... I remember a pumpkin pie being left on our apartment, outside our little studio apartment door. And my mom was like, you know, she always made pumpkin pies. And I had no idea where this pumpkin pie came from. It wasn't until years and years and years later that she told me, yes, that was her. But yeah, so I didn't have any contact with my mom for a while. But there were times throughout, throughout that 13 years, there were lots of times that I did have contact with her. Um, you know, I never wanted her to know what was going on. I didn't want her to think how I didn't want her to know how stupid I was. I didn't want her to think that Greg didn't love me because then that would make me wrong. I believe that Greg was the only person that could ever love me. I believe that because that's what he pulled me over and over and over again. And so I had to believe that he loved me because if he didn't love me, that made me unlovable. Yeah. So, I mean, there were times there were lots of, my mom was always trying to, uh, you know, she was always trying to be more involved, but we would play it off. Like we're a happy little family. Other times he would, you know, like he would let me and the kids go to her house. But then upon my arrival back, to wherever we were staying, back to Greg, he would basically start torturing me. But he would torture me for other things. But basically I would learn, oh, every time I go to my mom's, I come back and all hell breaks loose. Okay, maybe I'll stop going to my mom's.
2: Oh, okay. And I, I mean, at this point, too, uh, had you, you guys have had more children together as well. Correct. So, three and a half yeah. years after Latasha was
0: born, we had our second child, uh, Gregory.
2: And so then, I, I'm sure that that increases it too, because it's it's you've got to provide for them as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then plus because he was such a good, I mean, in a really sick way. <laughs> so, I mean, the kids believe that he was a good dad. So they they only saw dad buys him things dad you know there's fun things dad is great and wonderful person so like you know I remember there were times that I left him and the kids would just go I want to see daddy I want to see daddy I want to see daddy and and then that's what would get me to go back to him because I don't want to take his kids away from him I mean even though I mean the mind manipulation you it is so strong and so embedded in your brain it's just it's really hard to explain
1: yeah well it's the diminishment of your will right
0: yeah yeah so I've always had a really hard time how do you explain to somebody who has no idea you know why would you stay Wendy why didn't you go back to the shelter call your mom say mom come pick me up I don't want to do this anymore and One, I think we need to all understand how powerful words are, you know, words like your mom really doesn't love you because if she did, she wouldn't have allowed that man to touch you the way he did. But still, how do you explain this to somebody? And it was about a year ago, I started binge watching the TV show Quantico. So it's a completely fictional show, just Mm -hmm. a weekly thing. And it's about uh, people going through FBI school. And one Saturday afternoon, I was in the second season of the show and I'm binge watching it. And there were three episodes in a row where the agents were being trained on how they could gather enough information out of a person just through regular everyday conversation. Do you have a pet? What's its name? Where are you from? Where are your parents from? What are your political beliefs? Then once they have this information, they the, the agents are being trained on how they can manipulate that information to make that person do something they would never do on their own and make them believe that they did it by their own choice. I remember sitting there after the third episode, sitting on the couch, remote control in hand, in complete shock. Wondering, when did Greg go to FBI school? <laughs> this is exactly what Greg would do.
2: And I, and I think that's, we, we actually have a podcast that we did focusing on Seth's research, kind of more broadly on psychological coercion. And it, it seems like that's, and that's a really hard thing for, for service providers, for politicians, when we're trying to explain that, you know, the profile doesn't exactly look, the, the chains don't have to be physical, they can right. be, but but they don't have to be. And oftentimes yeah. I think they're stronger when they're not. Yep, it is.
0: Yeah. It is. It's it's those psychological, that's what keeps you coming back, you know, and you know even when you do have the guts to leave, I'm leaving this situation, it's those psychological chains that bring you right on back to believing, okay, I'll never make it out here. My only worth is to be with him. You yeah. know, I mean, it's like for me, it was the, uh, my worth was defined, by the amount of money I could make in a night. If that was your only worth in life, if the only way that you could have any worth is to go out and sell your body, I can guarantee you now you would. Because Mm -hmm. nobody in this world wants to be worthless.
1: One of the things I I realized in studying uh, emotional and verbal abuse is the spectrum of control that you know, there's control in all facets of society. There could be control at work and, and that, you know, domestic abuse and domestic situations there, there's plenty of abusive situations there where, where one spouse controls the other spouse. And it's this recurrent thing of there's these incidents of harsh control. And then there's these hopeful moments of giving honey and, and, uh, that cyclical process, yeah, and that in your case, you, you had a bit of both—that you had the extreme control of trafficking in a domestic situation.
0: Right? Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of trafficking cases, like the type of we call it the boyfriend or the Romeo, the boyfriend, mm-hmm. pimp, the Romeo pimp. It is so intertwined with domestic violence. They look just—they look so much alike. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and Greg, what? Greg was. He he did give you honey, right? He, He had those times where he was different in order to manipulate you, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he could make us feel like a princess. He would, you know, I remember this one time. He brought me one single rose. It made me the happiest. It was like I had been starving for a week and he came and threw me a cracker. That is exactly what, I mean, looking back now, I didn't see it then, but oh my God, all he did was brought me this single rose. And I was like, oh my God, you're the the best thing in the whole entire world. You do love me. Oh my God, this is wonderful. But yeah, I mean, he had to make sure that he gave us a sense of happiness. I wouldn't say it was true happiness, but he had to give us a sense that we were happy. And so you know he did there were times that you know we would you know go out to the lake and play all day long of course we had to go out at night and make money you know he would give each of us days off you know oh yeah you don't have to go out make those other girls do it they don't need to do that and he would do that to the other girl and it would make me feel oh he does love me see he doesn't want me doing this you know and but the thing is he would just take turns doing that with the different girls you know, saying, no, you, 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 I don't want you out there working the street. I love you. You know, these all the other girls, they can go out there and do that. I want you home with me, you know. And that would make us just feel so wonderful. But you know, Sarah, a week later, <laughs> it would change.
2: And I'm sure that, that that, you know, you've touched on this very, like, a little briefly. but And then I'm sure that the fact that there are other girls present, too, coming in and out complicates things as well. Um.
0: It it did. It did. But also, it was, you know what, near the end, I'd say probably the last four to five years of it, this is how sad this is, is when he would bring a new girl around, I would literally think, oh, good. I'll have another friend. Mm -hmm. I literally thought, okay, it was such... A connectiveness between us. I mean, it took me years and years and years to say the word "I," because it was "we." We worked the street for Greg. We suffered. We got beat. We, uh, you know, went out and made money. We. Everything was we. 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 We were so connected, um, you know. So yeah. So there was always these secrets, you know. I mean, because each of us believed that. Uh, no, in the end you know, he's going to get rid of everybody else. Um, But near the end, it wasn't even like, I mean, I probably say it was like that for the first eight years. And then for the past five years, in the later five years, the last five years of it, it was just, you know, no, it was, this is my life. Mm -hmm. This is, I am, there's no hope. There, there is no more hope. There is no more dreams. There was no more carrot of things will get better and, oh, I won't have to do this anymore. By that time, I had just accepted this is my life. This is my only worth. Things are never going to get better, but there's no way I can stop it. There's nothing I can do to, you know, there's no way of, of, of escaping
2: this. And then, so I guess what that what that question then leads into is is then then what did happen because obviously things did change, so maybe what what kind of started that that sort of catalyst
0: well I, the police so in the end, so the police were tipped off what was happening, and I remember i was it was about two o 'clock in the afternoon. I remember I was at the stove I was making craft macaroni and cheese. Greg was in the living room with our newest son, who was just two weeks old. And because I had just had another child with him. There was a new girl in the bedroom. She was 14 years old. He, she had been around for about six months, but he hadn't turned around yet. He was still grooming her. Um, the other girls were like, they had been disappearing. We didn't really know what was going on. A couple of them we knew were in jail, but other ones were just disappearing. We just thought something's weird. Something's odd. And, and I remember I was making the macaroni and cheese for that, um, because I knew that Latasha and Gregory would be getting home from school soon. And all of a sudden I looked over to the side and I saw the entire SWAT team running towards our house. Now you have to realize it is, we are trained, it is beaten into us, what to do if the police ever come for Greg. You protect him with your life. You get him out the back window, you get him out the back door, you stand in front of the door and take the bullet if you have to. This is ingrained in us so deep. We know what to do, it is almost like reflex. But I don't know, just something wasn't going right that day because I remember looking out, seeing the SWAT team, and my eyes locked with one of the police officers. And I just remember it had been so long since somebody had looked me in the eye. And I remember he motioned. He motioned with his hand to open the front door. So I walked over to the front door. I opened it up. I swung it open. I said, Greg, the police are here for you. So the police came in, they took him down, they took him down to the station, but then they walked over to me, was like, we're going to have to take you down and ask you some questions. And I was like, okay. So they took me down to the police station, you know, they handcuffed me and everything else and left me in this room for what felt like five hours, still handcuffed. When they finally got me, Um, They took me into a little room, set me at this table, and then two male police officers came and sat down on the other end of the table. They started asking me questions, and the only thing I could think of is how bad I'm going to get beat tonight if I talk to these people. I could not comprehend that Greg was in jail. I could not comprehend that they would have enough evidence against him. I mean, there's no way I, I, I know that there, are, you know, at least 10 of the girls are going to say Greg would never do something like that. There's no way I can say that he's doing these things. And so I did what Greg always told me to do, if ever in that situation. And that was put your eyes to the ground and don't say a word. So I remember they continued to ask me questions. And at one point they asked me, do you want an attorney And for some reason, I thought an attorney was female. An attorney was a girl. So, you know what? Maybe if she came in here, if they asked the questions, then I could whisper the answer into her ear, and then she could tell them. Now, just stop for a moment and think, what is my emotional age at that? At Mm -hmm. that time, to sit here and think that I'm going to whisper into this attorney's ear, But the thing is, that's not how police work. When you say you want an attorney, um, they shut it down. They said, fine, you are going to be charged with everything he is being charged with. I was charged with, um, I believe it was 13 counts of promoting prostitution, 13 counts of compelling prostitution, a couple of counts of conspiracy to promote and compel prostitution. My bail was $3 million. They took me to the county jail where I sat there and I waited. I waited for Greg to tell them the truth. Because Greg's not going to let me go to prison, is he? I have three children with him. He loves me, right? He's not going to let me go to prison. But after five months of sitting in the county jail and waiting and waiting and waiting, I finally um, took a plea deal to uh, plead guilty to two counts of promoting prostitution and i received 23 month sentence so
2: and I've at any sorry not to, not to cut you off but at, at any point when you were being held did anyone come to talk to you from you know that we think you might be a victim to or nope you know um, or a- any sort of services no nope, none and because that's, reading the book, I, there's there's a number of times where I wonder if they had just sent in sort of a, a social worker or just a female officer or, or someone. Right. right? If, if that would have changed things so dramatically for yeah. you. I think, you know, and,
0: and that is a possibility. You know, I can't say for sure.
2: Yeah. But I know that
0: something, and the thing is, is that, you know, so when I told my attorney, my mom always told me. Wendy, you always tell your attorney the truth. You tell them the whole entire truth. They are there to protect you. So you tell them the truth if anything happens. And so I did. I told her the truth about everything. And I also told her, there is absolutely no way that I will say this on the stand. There is absolutely no way I'm going to testify against him. There's no way. I said, if you tell anybody that I said this, I will deny it. I mean, remember, that's my at that point... I think she should have gotten some help, but instead she respected me. She respected my wishes and said, fine, we will not say anything about this and we'll go through the process. She never said, you know, she never encouraged me to, at least that I remember. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about the attorney. I mean, these are my, the events, how I remember them, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, you know, I thought she was a wonderful person. I, 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 I love that she respected me, <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, good, you know, somebody knows my secret and they're not going to throw me under the bus, but um, yeah. So then I ended up uh, going to prison and it was actually um, my first day of prison. So as I was being sent to the prison, I remember I was so scared. I was so, I mean, that's where they send bad people, right? (laughs) And I'm not bad. And I remember just thinking about all the movies I saw as a child. And I thought about how I'm going to get raped and all these girls are going to beat me up. And I'm just like, oh, God, this is so scary. But one of the other girls were also being sent to the same prison. So we were on transport together, but we still weren't really talking because, you know, guards were around and we were just like kind of still in shock. And so we finally get to the prison. When we get there, we get separated. And the first available time for us to um, go to the play yard together, I remember I walked out into the yard looking for her and I saw her out in the grass sitting down. So I walked over to her and I remember going to sit down. I put my hands out and I put my hands in the grass, and I remember just stopping and wondering when was the last time I ever felt grass, and I noticed how good it felt, but then I just went ahead and I sat down beside her, and we didn't really say anything, we were sitting there just looking out beyond the barbed wire that surrounded us, and the sky was blue, there were a couple white billowy clouds in the sky, and all of a sudden we kind of started giggling, and we kind of looked at each other, and we knew both of us were feeling this feeling that neither one of us had ever felt before, and we couldn't identify what it was. And then we kind of started laughing at each other, kind of looking at each other like, okay, we're crazy. We're crazy. But then all of a sudden, at the same exact time, we looked at each other and said to each other, we're free. We're finally free.
2: And it's almost like it took that physical distance of of now months from from Greg. Because I'm sure that you guys have a lot of anxieties and concerns because you've got kids on the outside. Um, Did you know what was happening to to Greg legally? Yeah, at that point,
0: um, we had just found out that day also that he was sentenced to 10 years. So I'm sure that helps as well, the sort of
2: knowledge that.
0: (laughs) That he's going to be away for, you know, at least eight to 10 years, Um, you know. So I kind of, at that point, I started going, you know, I I have eight years to move out of the country. At that point, it was like so far it was, okay, I got to run. But I got so that years.
2: was that was your first thought? Like, I got to yeah. get on a plane, I got to get out?
0: Yep. That, somehow or another, get out of this country before Greg gets out. But at least I had eight years to do it. I got eight years to get my, get mm-hmm. my butt in the air, figure it out. You know, I had no idea what the future was to hold. I mean, you know, I just kind of was just thinking, I'm going to get on a plane and go.
1: Well, at one point, somebody told you that you were addicted to Greg One of the things that was interesting was that you had technically, physically escaped Greg how many times in that 13 years?
0: At least, I want to say, five to eight, if not more.
1: And uh, what were the longest times that you were away from him, approximately?
0: I think one time I had stayed away from him for about six months. Six to eight months, I'd say.
1: And that time, how did you feel when you left did you feel like you had escaped a situation?
0: No, there was a hole. There was a hole in my heart. There were the, the hole was Greg and the other girls. There, Yeah, you know I mean? It was. There was this, this addiction. And so somebody that does not get treated for the addiction, if they don't have the tools to get over that, they're going to continually go back. And I think that's what there was this hole in my heart. And I felt like, I mean, and the brainwashing kept going during that time. I mean, it was still his words in my head. I'm never gonna get anything right. Nobody will ever, nobody's gonna ever love me. You know, I can't do anything right. Everything I touch, I destroy, you know? And so there was no, you know, I don't think I could really process what was happening at that time but nobody else was there to help me process it either.
1: And so that was one thing that was different uh, after you were arrested?
0: I think one thing that was, yes. So there was a couple different things. One, the timeout. Being in prison was actually really, really good for me. I needed that safety. I needed that timeout from life. Second, when I was released from prison, Um, I had a parole officer, my very first parole officer that I had for the first year. Um, He actually cared about me. He actually took interest in what I was doing with my life. Um, He gave me the support and the attention that I needed. Also, there were some, I got into a kind of like a halfway house. It, It was not a typical halfway house. It's kind of hard to explain. But there, there were three correction counselors that were basically on site from 8 to 5 every single day, Monday through Friday. So anytime I had, you know, I went through an emotional roller coaster, there was always somebody that I could go to and go talk to. There was a lot of guidance, a lot of support, and it was a long-term program. That program, I think, was three to four years Um, Unfortunately, because of funding cuts, that program doesn't exist anymore. And honestly, I don't know if if it I think, you know, it took a lot for me to get to where I am today. So I don't want to say it was one thing or another thing. It was this. It was my mom. It was this. But I think, you know, I needed that caring parole officer. I needed those correction counselors that were there to support me and care about me. I needed my family. I needed my connection with my children um you know i needed that realization of wow i greg didn't love me i know that was a really really hard one to come to the realization finally that greg didn't love me that it took a long time because when i would whenever i would come to the point of going oh my god he didn't love me i would get so well then i'm unlovable And I I would just crash. And so I had to have that support. I had to know that I was loved by others. I had to know that I love myself enough to come to that realization that, oh, Greg didn't love me.
1: Well, there's been multiple stories that we've heard uh, both domestically and internationally of People who go in and they do a raid and uh, it it can be a mix of people who are in it for various reasons, but and that sometimes people go back. And uh, part of that is not recognizing that just separating somebody physically from an environment is not sufficient to deal with the the trauma, the, the ongoing traumatic experience of trafficking.
0: Yeah, there, there has to be, there has to be a, uh, what do they call it, um, round, um, there's a word I'm looking for, you know, where they surround you with the support that you need, you know, you need the counseling, you need education, you need time, you need love, you need healing, um, there are so many things that you need that coming out of that life, and the thing is, is that you're so... I say healing from trafficking, the journey to freedom is lifelong, is lifelong, literally. I mean, yes, it gets easier and better, but I mean, there are still things that have happened like in the past three years that have devastated me, you know, so much. And it's just like, and it is these little tiny things that would not devastate somebody else. But it's like a trigger for me for some reason, for, for whatever reason, that event, you know, that person looking at me sideways triggered something in me, which, you know, put me out of work calling out sick for a week, you know, whereas anybody else would have been like, okay, whatever, you know, and so there's just so much support that's needed. And I think, you know, getting somebody to that point of being self-sufficient is, you know, really, um, it needs to happen. You know, but more people, we see her, once you have a criminal record, people don't want to rent you, they don't want to hire you, you know, they end up in, you know, and then it's, it's like, okay, why not, I, I might as well go back, what, what, what am I worthy for?
2: Well, and that actually takes me directly to, to the next question I had for you, which is, you know, again, something that we've talked about um, for our podcast listeners. We um, did some on the work of Monica Peterson, um, which was focused on sort of in particular, this idea of we save women, particularly from, from sex trafficking, but what do we save them to? Where, where do they have to go after? And sort of, so what happens when you get out of jail? Yeah. Where, now that you do have this criminal record from events related to you being a trafficking victim, what, what happens to you and sort of your options?
0: At that point, it's very, very, very limited. And I have total respect and I totally understand why some people choose to go back. I get it. I get it. What is, I mean, that's the thing is something in society has to change. You want to say, oh, yeah, come on over here. But one, you don't want to be, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, a hindrance on other people. What, am uh-huh. I going to live in a safe house for the next 10 years until my record falls off? You know, I mean, it's like, I want to know that I am capable of taking care of myself and that I am a contributing person of to our society. You know, our society is better off because of me. You know, whether it's working, you know, in McDonald's or whatever. I mean, I hopefully, you know, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, when it's a choice of, you know, I'll go to McDonald's and work or I can go make a whole bunch of money and maybe I can keep it in my own pocket, you know, well,
2: and I, so it, it, and, it's difficult. And that's one of the things that, that I've heard you talk about sort of the, the problems you had specifically with, with, with finding work and like renting an apartment mm. and, and getting custody of your children and, and things of that nature,
1: Yeah, well, that's where we should clarify that uh, Wendy was charged with promoting prostitution, which was a sex crime, and therefore had to register as a sex offender. And uh, maybe before getting back to Wendy, JJ, you could reiterate the advocacy that you've done on this topic?
2: Yeah, so um, one of the things that the um, advocacy group I work for, Swan, was was trying to do is that a similar law was up in Colorado that would place... um, people, even if they, if they had proven that they um, had been arrested for crimes related to them being trafficked themselves, they could be placed on the sex offender registry. Um, The, the, the sort of party line that we were hearing from a lot of the politicians was, well, you can always just get taken off the sex offender registry. It's not that hard. No, it's not. Which is, which is not (laughs) true at all, which is not true, which is not true at all. And so we were very, I'm, I'm very firmly against victims Being placed on a registry along with their victimizers, yeah. Uh, That it's not, it's not. Survivors shouldn't be on a registry list, yeah. Yeah. uh, Because of crimes that they were forced to commit or forced to be complicit in um, while being trafficked. But this is this is a thing I don't think people quite realize when we talk about maybe, especially in the U.S., the sex offender registry, yeah. Um, The sort of wide variety of people who can actually end up on yeah. the sex offender registry. I think there's this belief that it's rapists and pedophiles and that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as, as opposed to sort of actually this, this very wide net that can can be thrown out um, for who gets on the registry and then to get off the registry is is exceptionally difficult.
0: Yeah, it does. I, I don't know of anybody that's been able to get off of it. I mean, yes, I got off of it. I still don't know how. I'm still not mm-hmm. sure what happened, and we're not going to w- – I won't go into that. Because I, been, right. it, it was a miracle. Let's just say it was a 100% miracle.
1: After that how many I, years?
0: Uh, I was on it for – let me see here. I was released in 2000, and I think I got off in like 2008. So, I want to say okay. about eight years, and it was devastating. It is horrifying. And it's not just a list. No, when you are going through parole and probation, you have to go to sex offender treatment. Um, where mm-hmm. in sex offender treatment, I had to take ownership that it was my fault that my stepfather sexually abused me. That was my fault. I had to take ownership. I had to take ownership of every single time that Greg went out there. And recruited a new girl. And brought her home. It was my fault. It was 100% my fault. That I did not protect her. It is truly 100%. It is. uh, Yeah. It's to see your face. On that screen. And for people to judge you. I mean, thank God people knew who I was before. I mean, you know, when I would reveal, and guess what? I'm also listed on the sex department. They would just be like, what? No, you're the first person in the world I trust with my children. I was like, yeah, you know, read my book. They've already, I've already proven to them who I am at the very core level of my soul. So they knew, they were like, yeah, something's not right here. You know, but the thing is, is that for somebody that doesn't know me and just looks up, oh, look at her. You
2: know, it it's
0: truly devastating.
2: And you and you had to pay for yeah. those classes as well, too, right? That there's a.
0: Um, did I? I can't remember. I think most people do. I think for me, I mean, I think that yeah, for me, it was like on a sliding scale because mm-hmm. yeah, it was a sliding scale fee that they had me on, but. Yeah, but you have to pay for them and stuff. And that was one the of the of...
1: difficulties of getting back with your children was the sex offender registry, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was being labeled as a sex offender that, I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you'll have to read the book, but I there were so many times, every single time my parole officer changed, you know, like my mm-hmm. parole officer, you know, that first one I told you about, he was like, you go see your kids as much as you want. Just let me know if you leave the state you're good, I'm, you know, I see what you're about, Um, you know, I even had to, I had to go through a full disclosure polygraph test for four years, so I had to go through four, a full disclosure polygraph test, I don't know if you know what that means, but that means you basically have to confess to anything that you have ever done sexually, in any way, shape, or form, even thoughts that have gone through your head, and so I passed all of them, showing that I never that the closest thing that I ever did was I remember one time Greg had sex with me and one of the other girls and I was over 18 and she was under 18 like and so we were all three in the bed but I didn't touch her she didn't touch me it was Greg was having sex with both of us but the thing is I mean but also I mean you know but not to minimize let me see her I was driving 14 year old girls I was driving 14 year old girls good to go turn tricks and I was like me I was like yeah Greg told me to Greg said, get in the car and drive. So we'd go, we'd go turn tricks, whoever the tricks wanted. That's who we would, you know, whether it was me or the other girl or whatever. So I don't want to minimize what I did in any way. Yeah, so then like the next parole officer came in. He looked at me and said, you're a sex offender. No, you can't have contact with your kids. And I'd already made plans to go visit them. He, he wouldn't even let me call them to tell them I can't make it to our visit. He said, if you have any contact with children. And then he goes, wait a minute, where, what do you do with your life? And I said, I'm, I'm, I go to community college. He goes, how do you know that there's not a 17-year-old in your, one of your classes? And I was like, well, I don't know. I was like, are you telling me I can't go to college? And he says, all I'm saying is that if you are in the vicinity of a 17-year-old, I will put you back in prison.
1: Which is infuriating <laughs> when just just reading it and, like, you're trying to get your life together.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then the same thing happened. Then he finally realized who I was. He got to know me. He was like, oh, yeah, you go ahead, go see your kids. Then guess what happens? He leaves. I get a new parole officer who again tells me, nope, you cannot have any sh- any contact with your children whatsoever at all. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I have to go through this again.
1: And also as a point of qualification from from having read your book, like on one hand, you're assisting Greg as somebody who's also being trafficked in driving the girls around, but you also looked out for the girls, correct?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is this is, this is what's so weird. And even today, because I understand how other people see it, but this is what basically like, I remember this one time, one of the girls, I know today she was, she was only 14 years old. I thought she was 15 or 16. Still, what's the freaking difference? Come on. But, and I remember she was crying and she didn't want to go out on the street and work. She was like, please, Wendy, I don't want to go out there. I don't want to go out there. And so I was like, well, you know, and I knew she was going to have to go make money where was making her go. She had to go make money. So I was like, okay, well, why do not I just, I'll, I'll hook you up with one of my regulars and you guys can do it in my house. That way, you know, this guy is good. He's not going to hurt you in any way. He'll pay you good money. So here I'm seriously, I'm, this, no, I'm being the nice person. I mean, isn't this how sick this is? This is like I'm seriously thinking. I'm I'm being. I don't want her being out on the street. I couldn't see the other option. There were two options in front of me: her out on the street working, or me set her up with one of my regulars. Those were the two options. And of those two options, yeah, I, I don't want her to be crying. I don't want her out on the street if she doesn't have to be. And so it is, it's like, oh my God, you know, I understand when somebody goes, oh my God, you are sick. You are, you are, I understand. I understand why somebody would look at me and go, oh my God, you are the most horrible person in the world. I understand. Because if you're not there, if you aren't able to comprehend the, what he did to our brains, I mean, I understand.
2: And I, and I think that's part of the thing that people have a hard time understanding too, is that when, when you would leave Greg, you were leaving the, like your entire community as well. Yeah. you were leaving what support system, and you know especially I, I've heard you talk before that you kind of you felt responsible, and I think it's very clear for, for the, the girls. yeah, and you know plus
0: he would pit it you know like one of the times that I left him, he um, he would he blamed one of the other girls for me leaving, so he started beating her daily. Her job was to go get me back. Not only was he beating her on a daily basis, but she had to go out and make her own money, plus the money that I would have made. At one point, um, he ruptured her spleen. He beat her so bad, he ruptured her spleen. When her and I talked, I mean, so I had been away for about 45 days, and I missed her. I didn't know I was in a battered woman's shelter. I'm still like... I don't know how to live. I don't know how to talk to these people. And, you know, I miss my friends. That's, these are the only people that understand me. Nobody else in this world will ever understand me the way, and I seriously still believe that nobody in this world will ever quite understand me the way that they understood me, that we understood each other. But anyway, so her and I got a hold of each other and she told me, she said, you know, Greg is beating me on a daily basis until you come back. And I remember I started to say, well, why don't you, and I was going to say, leave him. But I knew that this girl would not be able to. I knew she did not have the strength. Um, And just FYI, this girl was like six years older than me. Well, so I ended up coming back. Upon my return, um, he took me into a room and he basically tortured me for three days for three days. He had me smoking crack cocaine and he interrogated me on every single thing that I had done in that past 45 days. Who had I spoken to prove I had to prove to him that I had not had sex with other people. Um, finally on the third day of him, you know, beating me, uh, interrogating me, keeping me awake, making me smoke crack cocaine. He, I remember I was, in the corner, on the floor, and he—he he came over to me. He looked down at me. He looked at me. He said, "You ever gonna leave me again?" I looked up at him. And I was like, "No, Greg. No. I promise. I promise. I'll never leave you again." He then went, walked over to the closet, and he took down the Bible. There's only one reason for a Bible to follow us around wherever we went. He, put the, he brought the Bible over to me, placed it right in front of my face. He said, swear to God on the Bible that you will never leave me again. So I placed my hand on the Bible. And I said, I swear to God, Greg, I'll never leave you again. I promise I'll never leave you. Then he got this really evil look in his eyes. And he looked at me. He said, no. Place your hand on the Bible and swear to God that if you ever leave me again, May our son Gregory die a painful and horrible death. And I placed my hand on the Bible. And I made the promise that would keep me there for the rest of my life. That would make the torture and pain stop for the night. So these are the types of things that he would do to keep us, you know, I I don't want to, I say, you know what, the bond of torture and pain is stronger than the bond of love. We were tortured. We cried. We got our asses beat. We smoked crack. Everything was we. And, it, it, yeah.
2: Well, and I think that's something people don't quite understand is, is in these sort of situations is that when you leave, you're leaving everything. Yeah. Whether Whether it's voluntary or not. And so maybe this this is a good space to transition to. So beyond beyond sort of the sex offender registry, you know, um and, and obviously the the fundamental issues with that. Beyond, you know, sort of people who are who are clearly survivors of trauma not getting treatment um while while incarcerated. What are some things that you would like to see sort of people who work in the human trafficking field do better? You know, what what do you see now as as a survivor and as an advocate? What do you
0: I want to see long-term programs. One, I need long-term programs. I mean, the only reason that I am, well, one of the major reasons that I am successful today is because that first three, the first four years, I had that wraparound service. I had those correction counselors. um, I had, well, the one good PO, but, you know, like those three correction counselors. I had other counselors. I had other supportive people. They were there to guide me in the right direction to where I, you know, was going to school. So by the time I graduated the program, I was also graduating with an associate's degree. Um, But still, it's like, okay, so now what do you do? And, I mean, thank God there was, you know, you you can read about it in the book. But, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, trying to get a job. Trying to get a job with a criminal record is extremely, extremely difficult. Thank God for this woman who was willing to give me a chance, who saw through everything of my life, and she gave me basically my first real job to where, you know, I could learn skills. I could learn office skills. Yeah, so I mean, people need support when they are, you know, newly out of the life, and... Mm -hmm so but a lot of these organizations they want to go out and help but really they don't want to help they want to save they they want to go in as the rescuer and the thing is is that you know so they go off and they ask these survivors to come and speak and then don't want to pay them and so there was a situation once and i think we've all been through this well survivors we, we want to help others. We Our passion is there. So I was asked, um, can you please come to um, Los Angeles and tell your story? I said, you know, I could, you know, but I don't even have gas money. I had no money. And she goes, well, I'll give you a $20 gift card. I'll give you a $20 gas card uh, when you get there. And I said, okay, I'm more than willing to. I, I, I want to help. I want people to do good. So I went to this event and... I I had never been to an event where people, it was like um, suits and gowns, like ball type stuff. There was, I remember this was the first time I had ever seen a secret auction. I had no idea what that was. I remember being, there were diamonds and there was tickets to all these, you know, operas and things. And, And I remember, you know, I got up, I spoke And I spoke probably for a good 45 minutes telling my whole entire story. And people afterwards were coming up and handing her checks. And I remember, like, I remember just happened to glance over and seeing one of these checks. And it was for, like, $1,000. Which, to me, that was, you know, I mean, but she was getting check after check. And I was like, wow. You know, people really care. That is so cool that people care like this. Then... As people were starting to leave, she would hand everybody a bottle of wine. She goes, "Thank you so much for coming. Here is your bottle of wine." So I, was, you know, went up to her finally. I was like, "You know, okay, I better get going now. I got a long drive home." And she was like, "You know, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate you so much, Wendy. Wendy, I, I, we could not have done this without you. Your story was so compelling. You speak so good. You really helped us out tonight. Thank you so much. Here's here's your bottle of wine. You take this bottle of wine home with you." Huh? I was too afraid. I was too shy. I didn't know how to ask. I need that $20. I literally had no gas. I literally, there was no gas in my car left. I was counting on that $20 gas card to be able to get home. I remember as I was walking to my car crying, I was wondering maybe if I put the wine in the tank, maybe it will make it go because isn't like alcohol and alcohol something and gas? I went, I drove to the nearest gas station and this was the first time I learned all about that your bank will actually let you charge on it and put your bank into negative and then charge you a $35 fine. So I I had no idea. So I, you know, I went and I put like 10 bucks into my tank just to get home and I was so thankful. I was like, oh my God, it went through. (gasps) It went through. Thank God. But then I ended up with a $35 overdraft fee. So, and I I hear these stories a lot. I hear these stories a lot and it's, it's sad. You know, I understand that there's a lot of organizations that don't have money, but you know what, that person, if you want to help, that person you're asking to help you needs help themselves. They need help. They're not going to tell you that they have a overdue, overdue electricity bill. They're not going to tell you that they're going home to Top Ramen.
1: Yeah, when they fundraise and make money off of you and then don't compensate you, that's not okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's it is it is. It's, it's sad what's happening out there. It's like, you know what, just remember the person that you're asking to come and help you raise money, that person there needs help and you could be a blessing to them because let me turn it around. You know what? There's a lot of organizations that have helped me. Let, me. let me turn this around because there's a lot of organizations that have never asked me to come and speak, but they have helped me when I needed help. There are people, there are individual people. This is a good one. To, this is a good one to share. You know what? There was this time, there was a girl girl, she was in desperate need of help. She didn't have anything. She was, you know, coming getting out of a trafficking experience. She reached out to me. I called organization after organization after organization. Please, we need help for her. We need a place to stay. Can you help her with, you know, a, a food card, anything? Can you help? Every, every single organization said, sorry, we can't help you, but we'll, you know, we'll give you telephone numbers. We'll give you more telephone numbers. I sat there. I called everybody I knew. Nobody helped. But you know what? When I told my coworkers that I was working with, I said, there's this girl, she needs help. You know what? Within an hour, we had raised $180 for her. So there are really, there are organizations that do help. Let me, you know, let me, you know, just ones that don't, and there's one that do. And it's like, so thank you to the people who, who are willing to help other people that are struggling you know, they're not out there to rescue somebody. I'm not out here to rescue somebody. I'm willing to give a helping hand to somebody. And it's to those organizations and to those people that I have profound thanks and gratitude and just, you know, thank God for them. Thank God for them.
2: And then so what prompted you sort of, sort of along those lines? What prompted you to actually sort of write and, and publish the book? You know
0: what? Okay, so while I was in prison, um, during that one-year drug because you guys read it, so during that one-year yeah. and alcohol treatment program, they um, we, we had to sit down and share our story with each other, and I remember my story came out. To, I, I wrote out like 40 pages, you know, all by hand with a pencil, you know, a little tiny pants pencil, and I held on to that, and just over the years, I think at first, you know, like I would share my story with somebody they'd say you need to write a book. I'd be like, "Okay, yeah." And I would think, you know, "Okay, yeah, I can write a book. This could be my livelihood, you know? So, you know, I can make extra money." And so I would write, and I would write, and I would write, but then I would either get overwhelmed or I, I, those old voices, you know, I don't know anything about editing. I don't know anything about publishing a book. This ain't going to go anywhere. I'd put it away. Then for a couple more years, you know, I'd, you know, again, somebody would say, you need to write a book. And so I'd do the same thing again. I'd get inspired, and I'd go, okay, I'm going to do this, you know. I'd write, and I'd write, and I'd write. It was actually about um, – I want to say I'm kind of guessing here about three years ago somebody asked me to speak I remember I was getting up they were introducing me to come and speak and so I had to have been more than three years ago because my book's been published for four so about three years prior to my book being published somebody had asked me to come and speak for their organization the person was introducing me I am I I had such stage fright I was literally, my heart was pounding out of my chest, my hands were shaking, there was sweat dripping down my face, and I thought, this cannot physically be good for me. This, I, I, and I continually was doing this, you know, I'd get up and I'd go speak, and my heart would pound, and I said, this cannot be physically good for a human body. And I remember as I got up on stage, I made the determination, I am writing my freaking book so I will never have to speak again. So um, so yeah, so at that point, I started writing and writing. I'm really looking for an editor, finding somebody who's going to help me put this together. At this point, I probably had about 800 pages of emotional throw up. I literally had 800 pages of stories and emotional throw up. Who's going to help me? And it was through a Facebook, well, it was through my mother's friend, was a friend of a, you know, friend of a friend of a, you know, Facebook world and everything. And we connected. She read what I had. I said, I have no money to pay you. Will you help me? And she read what I had and she says, this has to get out there. Wendy, I'm willing to help you. And so we started working on it. We had been working on it for about a year. When I went to the doctors one day, just a regular old doctor's appointment, you know, and my yearly checkup, and they find out, um, oh, Wendy, by the way, you have uterine cancer. And I was like, huh? And they said, oh, but, you know, this this, this it, it's, you know, they. The, I remember the doctor saying, if I had to have cancer, this is the cancer I would uh, have because all they do is they just take out your uterus and you're good to go. I was like, wait a minute, a hysterectomy? I said, does that give me six weeks off of work? And they said, yes, it does. And I said, okay, then we're good. And so I used that six weeks, her and I, my editor and I, that six weeks, all I did was write, write, write. She she helped me to, you know, kind of, you know, get things to where it was supposed to go. And then soon after that, yeah. we went ahead and just self-published on Amazon and the rest is history. <laughs>
2: And then so how how have you then in in sort of the years since the book did come out, have you – because, I mean, certainly you're still talking. Yeah. (laughs) So it didn't quite work in that way. Yeah. I've gotten over –
0: yeah. So I still go out there and I speak and I've gotten used to it and I've gotten – I've become pretty comfortable with speaking. And so, I mean, basically I do that for a living now. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so,
2: Yeah. And then, of course, so like we said at the beginning, you can get the book on Amazon. I highly recommend it. Um, we've linked them to your to your website as well. Have you thought about writing like a follow up or anything like that? Or you know what, I keep because now
0: what I do my daytime job is um, educating healthcare um, mm-hmm. healthcare and. I never thought anybody would be interested in all the times that I went to the hospital or the doctor's office, but that's basically all I talk about, which are totally different stories than what you have in the book, you know? And so I have thought about writing that. Um, I just, I haven't really made the decision yet. It's like, you know, that's a lot of work. And plus I think because I'm self-published, I, I'm actually really shy. I'm quiet. And to be a, To be self-published, you really have to, to be successful, to be successful, you basically have to go around and kind of throw your book at people's, you know, (laughs) like throw it at their foreheads. Hey, read my book. Hey, read my book, you know, be at the, you know, airport and here's my card, here's my card. And I'm not that person. So yeah, even though my book is like very well, um, the stars are really good. It's, it's actually does not do very well because nobody really knows about it, because I'm so shy and quiet. So it's like, really, am I going to really put in all that work for a book to sit on Amazon? I mean, because the only way that my book sells is if you tell somebody about it. It's not when I tell somebody, you know, it's when somebody tells somebody. And so it's like, I'm just waiting for more people to tell other people. (laughs) So hopefully this will hopefully this podcast will help.
2: (laughs) no and I, I I think that's so interesting because actually one of the things we have scheduled and the months moving forward is actually we're specifically talking to an ER nurse um about her anti human trafficking. Wow, efforts. and so that that's like an increasing thing that I think people in the human trafficking field are interested in. What can sort of first responders or front care frontline healthcare care workers you know what aren't they seeing when someone goes in say with um a, as you mentioned one of the one of the girls with a spleen injury. Mm-hmm. You know why? Why aren't people well? I can notice Yeah,
0: and there's a there's an entire podcast I can give you on just my healthcare experiences. <laughs>
2: <So>. <laughs> oh, okay, we got yeah. That
0: story, yeah. So if you want to, you know, go ahead and feel free to contact me again because yeah, there's plenty of stories I can tell you about um, my healthcare visits.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I think that that would be incredibly interesting but so I mean obviously now you're doing quite well and I mean you're back in Seattle which is yeah. one of my favorite places but oh,
0: yeah I'm we're still adjusting I mean because this is where um, so remember so do you remember the story in the book when I was out on Aurora Avenue um, and the police officer and the Kmart yes okay so that Kmart is now pet smart, which we go get our dog food and you know from there and you know we have our dog you know so we go there a lot because it's a pet smart but it's like yeah so it's really hard though because every single time I drive up there I'm very close to where there's all these little memories it's like yeah I remember that church over there and turning a trick in that parking lot and oh I remember over there I remember Greg dropping me off there and so there's a lot of it, it's really it's like a bittersweet I'm trying to learn the new Seattle I'm Because Seattle's changed a lot. It's changed so much that I'm trying to come to it as, okay, this is a brand new city. This is a brand new city, brand new area, brand new things to do. Let's go look and see what Seattle has to offer me. Um, But honestly, I think I want to go back to California and live. (laughs) Oh, really? I really enjoyed. If I win the lottery, I'm moving back to Orange County.
2: (laughs) All right. So I think, Seth, do you have any final sort of wrap-up questions? Or?
1: No, I think that covers it. Uh, thank you for coming on to the show and for sharing some of your story. And we encourage everyone to read Wendy's book. It's, uh, it's, it's a hard read. And uh, I appreciate, Wendy, uh, just what you're able to dive into. I, I can imagine just a lot of hard stuff to write down.
2: And then talk about again, and yeah. and bring back up, and so we we appreciate it so much. You coming on and and talking, and yeah, I cannot stress how how good the book is. I think everyone should should read it. And we have so few survivor based stories out there as yeah. well. Yeah, that that's that's a real I think problem within our community. So yeah. to have to have these out there now is great. Yeah,
0: there's um just to, you know I don't know if you want to add this on but uh, another yeah. really great book is um, Barbara Amaya's Nobody Girl, Nobody's Girl, Nobody's Girl by Barbara Amaya. It's a really good one. Um, there's Cry Purple by Christine McDonald. I'm trying to think of yeah, we'll just mention those two and. Yeah, but there are there are a few books out there, but um, Barber's is amazing. It's, read Barber's book. You'll love that one.
2: Okay, and I'll make sure that we link that then mm-hmm. as well in the description so people can visit it. It's actually, it's recommended on um, people who bought your book. You <laughs> <Well, laughs> should also get that one. The algorithm's so working. It, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so... All right. Well, guys, it was really wonderful speaking to both of you. And I really appreciate that you are shining light on this subject because, you know, I know it, it, it's it's a dreary subject. So make sure you both are taking care of you today because golly knows if, you know, something I said, may you guys might be traumatized now. <laughs>
2: so... No, we 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 do OK. But it's I mean, but that's sort of also I think that that's a big fear sort of we have like you know, as a researcher who I do direct interviews with people, and so it's always this fear, you know, am I helping or hurting by asking people to tell stories yeah. again, you know, or or for the first time.
0: Yeah, I know for me it does not I don't know if it's weird or what. I don't know. It seriously, it does not phase me at all. It does not phase me. I love I can't say I love talking about it, but yeah, I actually, I do. I mean, because I feel like there's a value in it. I feel like, you know, I mean, it's almost like a, every time I tell my story, it's almost a big F you to Greg, <laughs> you know? So I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. I, I love it.
2: Well, we're, we were certainly so glad to, to have you here. So thank you so much. And we would love to have you back. So yeah, well, definitely. time. All right. Well, you guys have a
0: wonderful evening.
1: All right. Thank you Thanks so much. Sunday. You're Bye. welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.